Welcome to the 350th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about disaster research and emergency management in the COVID era with disaster expert, Dave Neal. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We are still booking guests into the fall with openings in November and December. And we'd love to hear from you if you have new research to share on COVID. So please do get in touch. Thank you. As of today, September 30th, 2021, there are 4,779,778 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is 16-year-old student dies after school ends mask mandate, citing declining cases. This was written by Ashton Pittman and appeared in the Mississippi Free Press September 29th, 2021. I want to also acknowledge the continuing really amazing work of the Facebook group Young and Severely Affected by COVID. Susan Scudder, who I had on as a guest a couple of weeks back, and also Cleavon MD. You can catch him on Twitter at Cleavon MD. They both are bringing forward a daily collection of obituaries and life stories that are well worth your time and should be read and shared. Landon Woodson had always been healthy until COVID, his mother insisted in a September 23rd Facebook post, but two days later, the North Ponto Talk high school football player died of COVID-19 at a Memphis children's hospital after suffering cardiac arrest, she wrote. Pontotoc County teen's death is one of two child COVID-19 fatalities the Mississippi State Department of Health reported September 29th. Another unidentified child between the ages of 11 and 17 also died. Ten days before Woodson's death, his school district, the Pontotoc County School District, announced that it would be ending its mask mandate on September 17th. The Pontotoc County School District began the year with no mask mandate in place on August 3rd. On August 17th, though, the district announced that despite preventative measures like disinfecting and recommending students wear masks and hand, use hand sanitizer, Quote, COVID-19 cases and quarantines have continued to rise at a fast pace, unquote. The district decided to enact a mask mandate beginning on August 18th. Requiring masks will not only potentially help reduce the transmission of COVID-19, but also help reduce the number of potential quarantines and athletic forfeitures, the district said in an August 17th letter. 
That same day, the district announced that North Pontotoc High School, where Landon Woodson attended, would go all virtual for two weeks from August 18th till September 1st due to an excessive number of students and staff who have quarantined or tested positive. But the Pontotoc School District is one of several districts that have dropped mask requirements in recent weeks as COVID-19 cases declined. When most schools reopened in August, the majority did not require masks. Most implemented mask mandates after a boom in cases at schools statewide in Mississippi quickly dwarfed the entire fall 2020 semester. Cases have since fallen from 5,763 students testing positive statewide during the week of August 16th to 1,084 last week. It's unclear when Woodson first became ill or where he contracted the virus, but a Facebook post by his mother indicates that an ambulance first arrived to transfer him to a hospital sometime around 3 a.m. on September 22nd. Please, please get vaccinated, Woodson's mother, Tracy Young, wrote on September 23rd, including a photo of her son in his football uniform and one of him on a ventilator in the hospital. On September 25th, she confirmed that her son had died. State Department of Health told the Mississippi Free Press that none of the Mississippians under 18 who have died of COVID-19 was vaccinated. There are no pediatric deaths in fully vaccinated individuals, Mississippi State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers said. Since mid-August, when less than 15% of eligible Mississippi children were vaccinated, vaccination rates for children aged 12 to 17 have risen to over 30%, but there's a stark racial divide on child COVID-19 vaccinations. Health data shows that 38% of black Mississippi children between the ages of 12 and 15 are fully vaccinated. Well, the same is true for only 21% of their white peers. Among those who are 16 or 17 years old, 39% of black Mississippians are vaccinated compared to 25% of white Mississippians. Well, the two latest child deaths With the two latest child deaths, the total number of Mississippi children who've died of COVID-19 since the pandemic began has now tripled since July 25th. And 16-year-old Jenna Lynn Jensen of Picayune died due to complications from the virus. As schools reopened in August, Governor Tate Reeves said during an August 13th press conference that he had no intention to mandate masks in the schools this year, despite doing so last year. School mask mandates, he said, were no longer necessary because parents had since gained the option to vaccinate children age 12 and older. At the time, though, less than 15% of eligible children were vaccinated. Reeves also downplayed concerns about safety for vaccine-ineligible children under 12. Quote, if you look at those individuals under the age of 12, what you find is that it is very rare that kids under the age of 12 have anything other than the sniffles, unquote, the governor said on August 13th. Does it happen from time to time? Sure it does, he said. I believe we have had one fatality of an individual. Maybe it could have been two. I think there's three under the age of 18 at this time. Mississippi State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs corrected him holding up four fingers, four so far and one this summer, Dobbs said. The next day, though, that number rose to five when 13-year-old Michaela Robinson died just over a week after starting eighth grade at Raleigh Junior High School. Robinson, who was unvaccinated, had been in class and unaware of her illness as recently as three days before her death. In the month and a half since Governor Reeves downplayed the dangers of COVID-19 in children younger than 12, at least two of the Mississippi children who've died of COVID-19 were in the vaccine ineligible age group. The health department confirmed that one child who died in late August was between the ages of one and five, 
while another who died earlier this month was a baby less than a year old. Before I bring on my guest, Dave Neal, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is episode 350 of COVID Calls. There are, according to Johns Hopkins, 696,717 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States today. I want to acknowledge the tireless work of the team, including Bucky Stanton, Shivani Patel, Huna Kum, and Eleanor Mays, and then over a dozen others who've worked really hard over the summer to prepare the transcripts and the other materials that are going into the COVID calls website and archive. And that's going to be launching on October 15th. And I'll tell you a lot more about that next week. And we have special guests coming up throughout that entire week. Also, I'd also like to acknowledge my family for their constant support and toleration of me working on this project and their encouragement, frankly. One of the things that's happened to me lately is that dates and numbers generally are blurry. I'm looking more and more to the testimonies of healthcare workers and COVID survivors to make sense of what we're living through. In the narratives, I see the true outline of this disaster, and it's not something you can plot on a graph. I'm going to read just a, a short bit of a Twitter thread yesterday that a physician, Dr. Bakshi, posted. And uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Nija Bakshi. And her name is Nija Bakshi. She's a physician. And her Twitter handle is at Nija B, at capital N E E J A, capital B, at Nija B. Uh, you may see, I mean, this has become a, a genre, not a genre anybody would have maybe predicted or wanted, but a genre of physicians who are trying to, I think, shake the public into awareness and maybe drive up vaccination rates by explaining what's happening to them in the emergency department. I'm just going to read a bit of what she related on Twitter. Hi, Jane. This is Dr. Bakshi calling from Edmonton. I'm not sure if you're aware, but your mom, Anne, was admitted to the COVID ward about two hours ago. I'm calling because she's not doing well and will likely not survive the day. Deafening silence, followed by a chilling shriek, tears, gasping for air, trying to form words, phone clicks. Five minutes pass and I call again. Hi, Jane. I know that was a lot to take in. Through her tears, Jane responds, yes, I'm so sorry for hanging up on you. I was shocked. I didn't even know she wasn't well. I spoke to my mom two days ago. I'm in BC. I won't make it in time, will I? I don't think so, Jane. I'm so sorry, Jane. Tell me about your mom. Jane takes a deep breath. Mom is a fierce and spunky 75-year-old with the spirit of a 30-year-old. She loves to dress to the nines and is always laughing and always told us she wanted to die on her own terms. As Jane begins sobbing again, Doc, there's really nothing you can do. Can I see her? What will I say to her? Is she awake? Jane, your mom is awake and as fierce as ever, but her oxygen saturations are down to 80% and we have her maximal oxygen. She does not wish to be placed on a ventilator and this sounds consistent with what you've told me about mom. Would you like me to arrange a Zoom? Jane says, yes, please. I need 10 minutes to get myself together. Do I have 10 minutes? 
find the iPad, get it connected through a blurry screen and don PPE. I go in to talk to Anne about her condition before I contact Jane. With the high flow oxygen plus a non-rebreather mask we have on and we have on Anne to give as much support as we can, I have to yell so she can hear me. Your oxygen is not good. Your lungs are tiring out. There is nothing more we can do. And with a giant deep breath, I yell, Anne, you're dying. Anne looks at me deep into my eyes and mouths, when? Today. The thread goes on, and I, I recommend people check it out. Uh, Dr. Nija Bakshi on Twitter, at Nija B. That's the truth of what we're living and dying with in America and around the world today. And if we don't keep working to read, share, and tell these stories, then we will lapse into normalization. We will harden ourselves to loss and dream only of recovery, which is a fable as far as I'm concerned, instead of working to fix the structures that got us into this and keep us here. October 15th, we will launch the COVID Calls website and the research archive for COVID Calls. It's a small contribution, but I hope it's a meaningful one. So please stay with us. I hope these calls and the archive are helpful. And thank you always for your support of COVID Calls. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and this is one I've really been excited about. Let me introduce my guest, Dave Neal. David M. Neal, PhD, recently retired as Professor Emeritus in Fire and Emergency Management from Oklahoma State University. He's now a visiting scholar and affiliated scholar with Indiana University South Bend and an affiliated researcher with the Risk and Crisis Research Center at Mid-Sweden University. Dave Neal has a bachelor's and master's degree from Bowling Green State University, and he attended the Ohio State University, was a student in the Disaster Research Center in the 1980s, earning his PhD in 1985 in sociology. He has conducted disaster research since 1978. He taught his first disaster class in 1979. It's an auspicious year. <laughs> He's also received funding for his research from the National Science Foundation, Department of Homeland Security, Federal Emergency Management Agency, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the American National Red Cross, and the Alabama Consortium on Higher Education, among others. Academic publications can be found in many journals, and I recommend all of them. Uh, International Journal of Mass Emergencies and Disasters, Natural Hazards, Journal of Emergency Management, to name just a few. He's taught in emergency and disaster management degree programs since 1989. And in 2015, he received the Blanchard Award for Excellence in Emergency Management Education. Dave Neal, I'm just scratching the surface there. It's really good to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, only now have I fully grasped how much of an effort this is every day. I mean, this is quite a production. <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> Thanks. I, I mean, I have a lot of people helping me out. And um, you know this, too. I mean... We kind of rely on each other, disaster researchers, and uh, the amount of talent out there is just really staggering. So it's always an honor to talk to folks and particularly to you. So um, I, I want to get started. Maybe we can just start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and what it's looking like there COVID-wise. Okay. Um, I am currently in South Bend, Indiana, which is um, hanging in there with COVID right now. We're uh, we're the county I'm in, St. Joe County, is probably a bit over 50% vaccinated, 
which isn't that good per se, but for Indiana, that's a pretty good number. And I think it's because we have at least four universities in the, in the county. Of course, a lot of people are familiar with the University of Notre Dame. Of course, we have Indiana University, South Bend. Uh, St. Mary's, which is part of Notre Dame, they are, but they aren't. Um, Holy Cross University. So we have a well-educated group of people here. Some people may recognize the name Pete Buttigieg, which I used, I could pronounce, former mayor of uh, South Bend, who's now the uh, Secretary of Transportation in President Biden's cabinet. So. Uh, a progressive city. You look at the counties around St. Joseph County, we're hitting vaccination rates probably around 33, 35, maybe 40%. So yeah, the situation isn't that good, but I think here in South Bend, although people come in from outside, the rare times I go out, I feel relatively safe, although I've had uh, two Pfizer's. I'll be getting the booster soon. I always wear a mask. So that's the way we live these days. What's the masking situation? Are you, are you seeing it? People wearing a mask in the grocery store or, or when you go out to the restaurant for takeout or whatever you do out in public? Yeah, for me, it's mostly the grocery store or a doctor's office. Of course, the doctor's mm -hmm. office, you're always going to see it or when I'm doing my, my physical therapy, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. and. As the situation gets worse or better, we can see the number of masks being worn increases and decreases. So there, there, there is some intent behind there, but on the one hand, you do have a group of people, I'm estimating you know, that classic like 33% number that just won't do it. So, uh, yeah, it, it could be better. It could be worse. <laughs> Let me follow up with you about your memories of this time. And I'm sure they're dense, but I wonder if you might pull one out for us, what this COVID era, something that really strikes you, your own personal memory this time. It was um, in my doctor's office just about a year ago. And uh, he he's aware of what I do what I did professionally. So we were sort of talking about COVID a little bit from a disaster angle. And he mentioned that um, he had just started his private practice. He had a practice and then he was also doing some work at the hospital, but he transitioned just to the practice. And he, he mentioned that so many of his doctor colleagues were having a difficult time dealing with all the death. And he said that he could deal with it a little bit better because the year bef between graduating from college and starting medical school, he worked in a forensics office, so he was dealing with dead bodies all the time. Now, obviously, he wasn't seeing them die, but he was dealing with death on a daily basis, whereas his colleagues before COVID you know, they would deal with death. It's part of being a doctor. You get trained with that. It's still stress. But this just became overwhelming. I picked up on a similar theme. Um, the first of the year, I did about four guest lectures for a interesting program 
degree program done by uh, Southern Methodist University and Baylor Medical College. So we had a combination of hospital administrators, nurses, physicians, fire chiefs, and that same theme, although cast differently, bubbled up as just this overwhelming notion of death. Now, we, the public standing outside, you know, we read about it, and maybe we know some people that have died, but to see this constant flow of death, and coupled with that, the, um, you know, the, the refrigerated trucks showing up, and we had them here in, in South Bend uh, for a period of time because there was no extra place to put the bodies. So, obviously, and we, we might touch upon this here in a little bit, COVID isn't just about all the deaths, which is enormous, but it is certainly having its impact on its own, a very direct, not subtle impact. But there are other more subtle things going on that I think a lot of us are missing out on. But it's, yeah, it's hitting the medical community really hard. It's, it sticks. You and I didn't coordinate this, but I mean, it sticks with what I was reading before. The need, Doctor Nijabakshi, and and these have been coming. I, I for a long time I didn't see them. Maybe they were there. I can't read everything on Twitter. I can't read everything that's out there. But I feel like in the last six months we see a lot more of them, nurses and doctors, telling their story. Yeah. And and I don't know people who are more expert in sort of the sociology of medical practice and healthcare workers will have to weigh in on this. I think there's just like with firefighters and police and other first responders, there's strong social pressure to keep it in, to keep it in personally and also keep it in, in the, in the, in the room. But then it's escaped that now, I think. What did you say to your doctor? I mean, you know, if he confided that in you, given your experience, were you able to pull something out of the disaster research bag to help him? Um, I was sort of first astounded he even said that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I didn't quite know what to say, but I, I did tell him that um, you know, obviously the topic's a difficult topic, and I told him about the research that I did with uh, Brenda Phillips and Tom Leichel right after the Indian Ocean tsunami where our research question was, what do you do with 8,000 dead bodies? Mm. Actually, there were 16,000 dead, but 8,000 were never recovered. And how they, you know, how the people gathered the bodies up and logically buried the bodies. You know, they identified, they had like 90% of the dead identified fairly rapidly. So they know where almost every person is who was buried in the three mass graves. But, you know, that's just the surface of that. So I, you know, I didn't know what else to say. So that was sort of the story mm-hmm. that I told them, yeah, mass death is a, tough thing to deal with and we you know we saw that in india although that wasn't ours was the bodies rather than the afterwards parts and you know that's one of the things about doing disaster research however you want to define that and that's casting a rather broad net there's a lot we know and a lot we don't know and that latter has implications uh, theoretically for the pure academic types and for those who are uh, professionals, practitioners, and those that are bridging mm. the gap, what, what do we do with this knowledge? 
And it's, you know, it's clear from, I think, extrapolating our research and looking at what happened at 9-11, uh, we as a nation aren't very good at dealing with mass death. I think probably 9-11 points that out better. Um, India managed it quite well, at least bureaucratically. There would be some people that would probably disagree with that. But when you have 8,000 bodies buried and 90% of them identified within four or five days after the tsunami, I think that's why uh, National Science Foundation and others were interested is, uh, can we learn anything from this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's learning and then there's applying. (laughs) No, it's uncanny i think for many of us when we have a sort of research heroes and then we find them on social media and i remember you know following you on twitter and i always enjoy you on twitter because um well for lots of reasons but one is that oftentimes somebody will be say opining about something and you come in with with something and say by the way corn telly 86 or you know just subtle reminders that there's also a nice base of research out there that we should continue keep at hand. And I think it's a, you do it a nice way, but I think it's a nice, it's a good reminder. And as a historian, of course, I love that. Um, and then you went silent for a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it became, I can't remember how you broke the silence, but you told us all that you'd had Guillain-Barre syndrome mm-hmm. through all of this, through this whole COVID thing, and that you ha- were in bad shape. <laughs> yes, I was. Tell us about it. Well, first of all, Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disease. And there's a lot we don't know about it. It's a rare disease. One out of every 100,000 people come down with it annually. So that, in the United States, maybe 3,500 people a year, plus or minus or whatever. Out of that, 30% of those who get Guillain-Barre have to be put on a ventilator. I wasn't. I but still, those are pretty, pretty good odds. And 10% of the uh, people who get it die, primarily because of the breathing issues. What happens is a virus of some type triggers the autoimmune system and it goes into overdrive. Now, remember, I'm a sociologist, not a medical person for those listening. And in, in, in response to this virus, it begins destroying the sheath, the myelin sheath around the nerves. When that happens, the brain cannot send messages all the way to the nerves to tell the muscles what to do or the muscles and relay the message back up to the brain. So in essence, um, I first had symptoms uh, middle or early part of September. Within a week, I was in the emergency room. In fact, it was and I'm not superstitious at all. I could hear uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson chuckling about this, but it was uh, Friday the 13th during a full moon. <laughs> it's when I was admitted to the emergency room. So <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. But um, I couldn't walk. I couldn't feel my feet, my legs. I couldn't. Uh, and then it started hitting my arms. I could feel it moving up my body. And if it hits the diaphragm, that's where you have to go on the ventilator. But it didn't get that bad. Um, I also, 
I had all kinds of issues, swallowing problems, messages to the heart were getting messed up. So I had some various heart issues they had to take care of. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, I was in the hospital for six weeks, um, 10 days in the cardiac unit because they were trying to get everything squirted around there. Then I was moved to rehab where I spent the, you know, the first week just trying to learn to move a toe. I mean, mm. and the goal for six weeks was to have me be able to go from my bed to a wheelchair with one person helping me. I had, there was a lift that was used to pull me out of the bed onto the wheelchair so I could go down and do my, my rehab uh, three hours in the morning, I think it was, and three hours in the afternoon. Um, I finally, like three or four months after going to the hospital, I really didn't need to use the wheelchair that much. I transitioned to a walker, and then from the walker, I was able to transition to a cane. And by um, the end of February, I was getting around fairly well, usually with a cane, sometimes a walker. I, I, could, I was allowed to drive. I had to go through all kinds of stuff to be able to drive again to make sure I was cognitively in, in good shape. And physically, my reflexes were okay. So I was able to get out and about, which was really nice. And then COVID hit. So I had to stop my physical therapy because obviously I didn't want to go back in and expose myself. And uh, so basically, you know, I retired the end of 2018. I had nine months of retirement here at home. And then I had Guillain Beret and then COVID. So that's, that's been my existence for almost three, three and a half, four years. Um, one of the, there's something called residuals in the Guillain-Barre world, which are after effects of the illness. And some of these will sound familiar for something else, as you'll find out in a minute. But one is brain fog. Um, you know, sometimes I'll be talking or say I'm talking something academically and I will forget a citation. Now, now who was it that wrote on panic in 1954 that said it really didn't exist? <laughs> Stuff as simple as that. And, and, right. Oh, it's Gordon Telly. Okay. But right. you know, it's, it's stuff like that or, or more real life. I come in the living room. My wife said, could you get me a, a glass of wine? And I said, sure. And I do two things. And then I just walk away forgetting the glass of wine. Although she would say that's my normal behavior. <laughs> right. The, um, um, my walking, I, I got to the point where I can move around. Now my physical therapy is about walking normally. I mean, there's walking and then there's walking. So it, it takes sometimes at least three years to recover. Probably the most weird part of it, and I've really had to adjust my my work schedule. Yeah, I'm retired, but you know, there's things I want to do. And that's the extreme fatigue. Um, when I first got out of the hospital, and if I took a shower at home, I would need a two-hour nap afterwards. That just mm. went without saying. The days that I have physical therapy now, um, I usually take a two-and-a-half-hour nap. Sometimes therapy is usually in the morning, so I'll take it late morning. 
And even in the evening, I used to do some work in the evening and even emails, and that's why I get behind sometimes. I just don't have the, the mental energy to hmm. sit down and think, say, okay, I'm going to write an email, let alone any other type of creative work. So that's still been a struggle, um, but I'm, I'm slowly dealing with it. So that's interesting, too, is that some of the residuals that uh, that you have with Guillain-Barre are similar to the uh, symptoms of the aftermath the long haulers have in COVID, right. which is the, uh, you know, the brain fog, the f- fatigue. There are p- a lot of people with Guillain-Barre that have the extreme joint fatigue afterwards. Mm-hmm. I don't have that, but there's some interesting parallels there as there is and i don't know if you've seen me get into this on uh twitter see i almost forgot what twitter was that was <laughs> but it's more probably on facebook because i belong to a guillain Barre group but mm. the, um the anti-vax stuff mm. is big and uh, in, in both you know Big data sets suggest that during the fall, when people are getting flu shots, there might be two cases per 200,000 people getting Gonbray rather than one. So that may suggest that the flu shots very rarely will cause Gonbray. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's lots of controversy about will. Um, the COVID shots caused Guillain-Barre and, and people are all excited because they said, look, one out of 100,000 cases, you, you're going to get Guillain-Barre. And I put, well, that's what it is normally. I mean, it's right. not even a correlation right. nor causation. It's just, so no, nothing, nothing's there. And, and in fact, the, the flip is what the concern is, is that COVID can set off Guillain uh, Bray and right. put the uh, immune system in overdrive, not the vax, but the disease but itself. The disease. And that confuses a lot of people also. So you, you see in both the, well, you see in the Guillain Bray world concerns about the flu vaccination and, of course, the, um, the COVID vax. And I, you know, I talked with my uh, physician about this back in. Uh, well, even last fall, when we knew they were probably going to be coming up, whether I should take it or not. And initially, I was a little hesitant just to see the data, but as soon as I could get mine, I got mine. So, yeah, some well, interesting parallels there. I'm glad you're okay. Thank you. And I'm sorry you went through all that. And I, I guess I wonder also, to, I mean, the you're right. I mean, those parallels to the, what people describe long COVID is like are are startling and real. And I, I guess, you know, just one sort of follow-up question on that is when you, once COVID started, so you, you know, you have a really unique vantage point on this because you're in the health system and then the pandemic is coming. Um, did you, I mean, have you noticed a difference. I mean, in terms of your access to care, or the the stress that the teams are under, or just getting using facilities. I, I wonder how, what that looked like. The one access to care I had, and it wasn't directly linked with Guillain Barre, 
Um, but I kept on getting these mild chest infections, and it's from asthma I have. So, you know, I would call, make the appointment, and then they would ask me these questions. Well, since I have a chest infection, it sounds like COVID. So every time I go see the doctor, I'm not going into the main office. I'm going to their COVID test area right. where they test me for COVID. And that became the prime reason for the trip. And the doctor really, and it wasn't his fault. It's the system. As a sociologist, I see the system. He could not do what he really wanted to do, although you know the, the test turned out to be negative. Right, because so we're we, in the COVID shoot. Yeah, so we were sort of treating things yeah. at the surface level until um, he and I, you know, we figured out what was going on. So we were able to get me into his main office by June to deal with the other issue. Um, and I think, you know, obviously there are people going into the medical facilities both when I go into physical therapy and doctor's office who aren't pleased with wearing masks or they'll let their nose hang out, which I find very mm -hmm. irritating and, and rude. But yeah, that's a whole other set of issues. Um, yeah, the access was just a little more difficult because everything is being pushed right. toward something else. Right. Well, I want to... Um A lot of questions for you about research, but I, I'd like to take it back and maybe just ask you kind of basic question why you got interested in disaster research in the first place and maybe talk a bit about what it was like to be a student at the Disaster Research Center and, and a really critical time because it was making that transition from Ohio um, yeah. to Delaware and I guess start anywhere you like, but I'm curious to know kind of what got you into this and then what was that environment like when you jumped in there with Dines and Corntelli and the other researchers who were really, I guess you could say, at their peak of productivity right around that time? Yeah. Wow. Well, the, the interest really academically became kindled when I took a class in collective behavior under Joe Perry at Bowling Green State University my, my junior year in college. And, and part of the curriculum, and it was also in the textbook we had, was about disasters. And of course, there's a theoretical connection between collective behavior, disasters, emergent norm theory. And that caught my fancy. And also at the time, uh, Joe and a colleague of his, uh, Matt Pugh, were writing a collective behavior textbook. So I volunteered to read a draft from the student's perspective. And that, you know, that just you know, and I became more and more interested in sociology. So then I did my master's at Bowling Green under under Joe, and it was on the the blizzard of '77 and how people got the messages and how did they prepare for this blizzard coming on. And uh, you know, although we all believe firmly in the all hazards approach, there's not much research on blizzards even today. I mean, it's just and blizzards are different than a lot of other hazards and disasters because basically when the snow's done 
hardly anything's destroyed except maybe energy, power. I mean, it's, it's just weird like that. So uh, after I graduated from Bowling Green, I taught for three years at two small universities, University of Evansville and then at uh, University of Montevallo in Alabama. Then I started at Disaster Research Center uh, September 1981, 40 years ago. And Dines at that time had left DRC a couple of years earlier to become the uh, secretary of the American Sociological Association, which in essence, that position is that you were the lobbyist for the organization representing all sociologists in Washington, D.C. Um, although you know, later on, I got to know Russ really well, part of the family. And, and also, as you well know, with Russ, there's nothing like sitting down with a little bit of scotch or something and just letting Russ tell stories. I mean, that was, uh, that, that's, that's always worth the price of admission wherever, wherever you're at. So DRC was sort of in a time of transition. Only Henry was uh, the only faculty member involved at that time. And there were six of us employed, primarily working on the Emergent Citizen Group in Disasters project, which um, there have been other research sort of dealing with this in the past, but this is a large-scale nationwide NSF-supported study about the hows and whys of neighborhood groups forming before or after uh, hazards or disasters. And a number of neighborhoods did this. Um, and to sort of segue off a little bit, I'll come right back, we might explore this later on. I think in some ways, in retrospect, this is where the germ of the idea came that the disaster phases are okay, but they aren't reality. As you can see, you know, a, a group working on preparedness and mitigation at the same time. Well, or mitigation and recovery at the same time. And you know, it just gets all confusing. So in addition to that, they, uh, there was a contract with FEMA, a continuation of a contract to just look at emergency response issues, specifically emergent groups in disaster. So, so to summarize from my time there, 81 to the end of 84, the, the notion of emergence, new groups or organizations that form before, during, or after disasters is probably the, the driving force behind a lot of what was going on at the center. Although at that time, a Quarantelli, I think by 82, uh, he knew he was going to retire soon because um, when, when uh, because of his age and cashing in some of his military experience, you know, he, of course, to say that Quarantelli retired is very much of a misnomer because you know, he moved to Delaware and he was, although he wasn't director of DRC, he was still cranking good stuff out. So um, there are two things that I found really interesting about that time period that uh, I was sort of in the you know, the middle of well, a lot, but one was that I, I remember when a word got out, Henry was thinking about moving DRC either to Delaware or to the University of Denver where Drayback was. Right. Um, I remember being at a, a regional meeting in, I think it was Kansas City, I, maybe it's the Midwest meetings, 
And I was presenting along with Tom Drabeck, Gary Kreps, and one other you know, known DRC alum who my brain fog is interfering with. So that was a little overwhelming to begin with. But then I get a message, see a message up on the board about 10 minutes before I go to the meeting from Drabeck saying, how would you like to have lunch? Which was just sounded really foreboding. I'll tell you, Tom's a great person, a nice person. Yeah. What Tom wanted basically during our lunch was the gossip on where Henry was leaning toward and what was going mm-hmm. on. Tom could make his pitch to get the center to uh, to Delaware. Eventually, of course, Henry made his decision, and it just made a lot of sense. And you know, sort of one part. Well, well first of all, Delaware is real close to New York City. He grew up in Little Italy, so mm-hmm. sort of close to home, and he always kept those New York connections. Um, Winger was there, and of course, Dines was there. So it's, I always see like Dines and Quarantelli, sort of like Lennon and McCartney and Jaggers and Richards. You know, they're just, and one maybe contributes a lot to one thing, one to another, but you know, their names are together like that. So uh, it just made a lot of sense for uh, Henry to move that to Delaware. And then I, this was probably three or four months before the move, the decision had been made. And I was in his office probably talking about, to a certain degree, getting my dissertation done. And all of a sudden, he, you know, it, was, it wasn't normal for him to do this. He sort of went into, you know, Goffman backstage behavior. But he said, I, I can't wait for the move. He says, if the air conditioner doesn't work, Winger's going to have to take care of it. If I have to fire a graduate student, Winger's going to have to take care of it. If there's a mouse in the place, Winger's going to have to take care of it. Basically, he was tired of being an administrator and just wanted to do his research. Fully understood that. So, <laughs> wow. so and that and that move was accomplished. And I mean, I just what you say. He was so-called retired, but I interviewed him in the in the two thousands. Um, and uh, I like your metaphor of the Lennon and McCartney. I'm trying to figure out which is which. I, I would suppose Cornelli is more the Lennon, and Dines is more the McCartney. I, I have to think about that a little bit more. Um, Cornelli was very kind, but also when I interviewed him, I asked a few questions that didn't measure up, and he just said, "I'm not. That's not an interesting question." You know, you know, and I was, I thought that was great because it saved time for both of us, you know, we move on to the next, next thing. Whereas Dines, you know, just as you said, we sort of sat down, had multiple long interviews with him and he just embraced my project and was so encouraging to young scholars and Corintelli was too, but in a different way. Um, yeah. But I got to know Dines a little bit. And then every time I'd come down to visit there, he would have a stack of stuff for me. You know, just here's some stuff. I thought about a question you asked. You know, I, I barely knew the guy. I wasn't his student. And just that generosity, but also I think strategic generosity too. I don't mean that cynically. Like they right. wanted to get the word out about this body of work. And I have drawn on their inspiration with COVID calls. Like yep. there's so much research out there. It, it can be esoteric at times. It should be. 
and then we have to sort of struggle to find these plateaus or median spaces where we can kind of pass things to each other and then pass them outside the community to others who can use them. And that's ongoing work. And I think that has defined a lot of what I really respect about your career is that you always had that interest in theory, but then translation. And I want to sort of follow up on that. How did you how did you get that interest? What stoked that? And I guess another way to ask it is, you know, what made you want to teach not only in sociology, but also in emergency management? Because I think you could do disaster sociology and then tuck into a sociology department and do critical theory and be fine. And there's a lot of researchers who do that and they write great things. That's not really been your trajectory, has it? No. And some of it is just where the, the social horses took me. Um, just, um, I, you know, originally, I went to study crowds and riots, and I published a little bit on that, although there's obviously some, some connections with disasters. And the position at North Texas opened up in 1989. I had been at Oak Ridge National Lab for three years, which was an interesting experience, very educational experience for me in many ways things I learned that I could take into the uh, academic arena. So North Texas was starting, well, they actually had the, the very first bachelor's degree in emergency management started in 1982. They had someone on loan from FEMA and some other people, and it, it just wasn't working out. And also they wanted money. They wanted, you know, everyone wants the research money to come in. So they hired two people who were, practitioner types. Uh, Tom Johnson, who'd worked with FEMA, and Bob Reed, who really wasn't a disaster person, but retired Air Force colonel who had very good connections with the administration. And they needed a, a, a disaster researcher, and they didn't want to pay the price of a full professor, so they hired an assistant professor. So I had a dual uh, uh, tenure line, I guess you would say. I was in both sociology and the emergency management program. I wouldn't recommend that for junior faculty members these days. <laughs> we have two different masters to answer to. But that gave me an opportunity to do sociology and to teach collective behavior at the graduate level because the sociology department had a PhD program and to do disasters and to teach disasters so it was the, the best of both worlds. And it also became very clear, and one thing that we promoted, and again, this is a first degree program, is that what we do needs to be evidence-based. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are even today that are teaching emergency management who are telling stories, what I call, I was there above us stories. Now, those are nice, and I have my own set of stories, but I like to tell a story that's grounded in the research or to show why the research is as it is, and this story illustrates it, mm. and you know, we get a lot of misinformation because of that. And I think one of the contributions that my colleagues and I made, and there's a certain irony here, is you know, we were making it up as we went. And by 91, 90, 91, we said, we need to have a real curriculum because the curriculum that had been put together before us was a hodgepodge of stuff. 
that was based upon certain people's interests rather than what are the needs of emergency management. So the first question was, what are we going to hang our hat on? What, what is emergency management? And it was my, my colleague, Tom Jocelyn, who I think first suggested, and this really led to a good discussion, let's use the four phases of disaster, which I thought was brilliant. I still think it was brilliant. So you teach an intro class, you have your introduction, history of the field, and then you have the four phases. And then you, you, know, you put on the end, might be international stuff, might be X, might be Y, make it to whatever you like. And then that sets the foundation for the rest of your curriculum where you have a class on preparedness, one on response, one on recovery, one on mitigation. And you know we had some other classes that we then integrated. And I think a lot of programs today copied that model stole it, borrowed it, I don't know what you say, you know, not knowing where it came from and and how it got established. Although I think it's I think it's still a useful approach, but gosh, almost 40 years, it's time to find another way to present that information. That's not my job. I already did that once. The next generation can figure that out. But it, you know, it's it still works in a general way for uh, for devising curriculum. Hmm. Um, and that, that's something that, well, with all the programs I help get started in various ways, that's one of the things I'm more proud of. But a lot of people really don't know about is my role at North Texas doing that, or at Jacksonville State with the first two totally online programs. And that not only means the disaster programs, but getting things set up undergraduate degree with all your gen ed requirements and trying to get that online. The graduate course is a little easier because it just involves us. So I, I think um, the coffee has hit right now and I'm not sure I was going with the. Yeah, no, I think we were, you know, I think it's. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this, this desire to integrate and you wrote about it in 90 i mean you wrote about it several times but you wrote about it in one case in 1993 for the international journal of mass emergencies and disasters and talking about this this really pressing need to integrate theory and practice and i'm glad you talked about the curriculum and the four and the four you know disaster stages pre prepare mitigation preparedness response and recovery as a way to think about a curriculum because because what strikes me as particularly ingenious about that is that it takes concepts which are useful in the world of practice, emergency management practice, which itself people should know. I mean, it, you know, incident management system and those kinds of things, um, they were all in flux in that time too. I mean, these were, you know, the 70s to the 90s were periods of time of enormous change in what we now sort of say emergency management seems like a settled matter, not at all in those years. But then you, you're also very, you bring them back into the world of theory so that there's this constant traffic back and forth from the applied, like this gets turned into a manual that people have to like learn and train on by law. And if they mess it up, they got to go to Congress and answer for their mistakes. And then you come to the other side and talk about what does it mean to talk about time 
in disasters? And are these stages? I mean, you're very reflexive about that in your work. We're going to use them, but we also need to have a reflexivity and a critical stance towards them. And I, so that's what I wanted to hear more about from you as well. I mean, I think how you, how you negotiated that, I mean, it's a standard thing we hear. We wish there was more theory in emergency management, but, and then we hear from the other side, we wish there was more pragmatism in disaster research. Maybe that's just family feuds that will never end. Although I think you made some, I think you made some headway there, frankly. And the solution to that now, and again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we can come back to some of this other, but it's still connected. The uh, third edition of our textbook, the title has changed. And it reflects just that, I think, to a degree. You know, the first two editions were Introduction to Emergency Management. But we've, uh, you know, we've been you know, looking out and being part of the field. Well, Brenda and Gary, Brenda Phillips, who's also my wife, self-disclosure for those out there that don't know. Uh, Gary Webb and, um, and myself. Let me just a little bit of trivia about Gary and me. Gary's from Texas. Uh, I was his thesis advisor, as it, as it turns out, at, at North Texas. And then he went to DRC, and his uh, dissertation advisor was Russell Dines. So Gary and I were Henry's and Russ's last PhD students. Now that's really digging deep for trivia, but so. There's another weird connection with Joe Perry I won't even go to, but there's this Texas thing going on with all that. So, you know, we would get on Zoom, and as we're getting ready to try to get the third edition together, and we decided for a number of reasons to change the title to Introduction to Emergency Management and Disaster Science, which in part, I think sort of reflects some of the issues you just brought up there, but okay, there's a certain body of knowledge that the professionals, practitioners need to know and need to use. But on the other hand, there is the science. And sometimes those are you know two different things going in two different directions, two different purposes, maybe down the road, there'll be two different books for that one more for the, sociology, geography, public administration classes, one for the emergency management degree classes. That's for the future generation to, to decide. But, and, and first of all, the, the usage of the word disaster, I think is really important. Uh, a lot of times we don't distinguish between these events very well. And the word emergency gets overused. And, you know, emergency management for a large-scale event, well, that's not an emergency. So you're already giving the wrong impression by the usage of that word. You know, in, in fact, in the textbook, I think I wrote this section where in the most simple form you have everyday life where these little emergencies, heart attacks come up. It's also in the, the social, social Time article. Then you have disasters, and then you have the catastrophes mm. that, you know, there's different levels and all kinds of different things going on and 
but that's you know that's for down the road. The other thing about the textbook we had to keep in mind was it's a survey course or a survey course, and you can't dive too deeply. And that was probably one of my problems when I was writing because I was thinking, oh my God, I wrote this journal since. What if one of my colleagues sees this and said, well, that's true, but what about A, B, C, D, E, and F? And then we'd have to step back and say, well, that's not the purpose of this textbook. It's Mm-hmm. We can do that some other time. So we'll continue to struggle. I, I've had a lot of students who are, especially PhD students from Oklahoma State, who are former emergency management, fire chiefs, uh, police officers, and so forth. And it's like, okay, they went through the process, they learned the research, but did they really learn it to use it? You know? But we're just going to go back to our old-fashioned way. So that that battle's going to continue. That you know, what what knowledge don't mean nothing. It's it's your experience. Mm-hmm. Now, one way I used to argue against that in class, you almost alluded to it, is um, if you make a mistake and you're sued. I'll say I'm not a lawyer, but if you make a mistake and if you're sued, if you can say you used the, the best evidence based on science for your decision rather than what Bubba told you, you're probably going to be okay in the lawsuit. But if you say, well, Bubba told me to do it, you probably are. It doesn't stand up. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I want to come back to the time issue for a second because with COVID it's been, and, and maybe bring COVID into this a little bit, you know, describing, I thought something you just said was really important. So in I guess April of 2020, Federal Emergency Management Agency of the United States becomes lead organization for the response. Health and Human Services was fired. FEMA was hired. I'm simplifying. Um, and I think maybe in April of 2020, that word emergency might have made more sense to what we were looking at with COVID. Um, but you know, even that word, as you say, is problematic as we start to think about time. And COVID's a weird one because it's it's way longer and way more impactful than a disaster event that we might think is a bit more localized and a bit more punctuated in time. But it's not climate change. I mean, I, I'm hoping it becomes endemic in a, within a reasonable amount of time. God, I'm really hopeful of that. And so um, maybe we're looking at a four-year um, span here. That's what I've been reading um, lately. And so the disaster phases, the stages as received, don't seem to account for the way time is playing out. And then, so I, I just want to point to this article you wrote in 1997, but it's been a theme throughout a lot of your work, and it was reconsidering the phases of disaster. And you, you introduce this, this correction, you say, you know, we can talk about the clock, we can talk about the calendar, and that's useful. But we also have to think about time as a as a social negotiation, and that for me, I remember when I fir- I remember where I was when I first read this article, and I was like, okay, and so there's there's the source of conflict that you have to have a bureaucratization and an administrative state to deal with something that that is re- a management function in terms of disaster, but we're also dealing with human beings and organizations, and that means it's society, 
and finding ways to translate one to the other and learn one to the other and work together is so crucial. I think it's, and COVID has shown everything that can go wrong with that, I think, frankly. So I want to draw you out on all of that. Um, first of all, and obviously I've been thinking about this. One of the things I like to do now that I'm, I say, semi-retired is that at night, go out on the back porch, look at the stars, and have a little bit of a scotch or drambouille or something like that. Just, you know, one or two fingers and mull these things over. I'm almost thinking, well, the phases don't work at all for COVID. And part of the reason why is that, okay, let's say it's back in March, April, May, we're in response. And then things drop off. Are we going to, are we preparing? Are we trying to mitigate? But then another wave comes up and it's these waves that keep on jolting us back to response. And you, you think about, again, the, with the refrigerated trucks and reconfigurating the hospitals, how many times are hospitals having to do that to go back in response mode when the wave gets really high in their area? The, the other thing about COVID, and, and I like, I use Charles Fritz's definition of disaster, although it's, it's almost as old as I am. But basically, you know, a situation located in time and space. So he captures the time element. You think about COVID when we're having, when we were, are having one, 2,000, 3,000 people dying a day. You know, well, that's scattered throughout the United States. It's having impacts. But imagine if those deaths were in one city at the same time, you know, such as a 9-11. That would have a greater impact. So, you know, we see close to seven hundred thousand deaths now, but we, we can't quite conceptualize that because it's not a nine eleven, but it's happening in the same time, but it washes away. So you know, right now, and it depends on our geographical location. Perhaps are we really in back in response? Are we in preparedness? Are the COVID boosters from Pfizer, is that mitigation or is that preparedness? I, I used to joke in class to, to make the conceptual problem of preparedness and, and mitigation. It looks like it's going to rain. You grab an umbrella. Is that preparedness? Is that mitigation? Well, that can lead to a 50-minute discussion. Mm -hmm. People getting pretty upset about that. Well, that's the same thing with, with the shots. Where are we with this? We, I don't know. So that again says we need to, I think, recast some of our ideas about what we go through. My, uh, my pulmonologist asked me really an intriguing question uh, two months ago with this. And it was basically, uh, can we continue to sustain this for another year or two mm -hmm. or is this going to be our our new normal what they're doing on emergency every day yeah so the question is how long can we maintain i'll, I'll use the four phase terminology how long can we stay in response right right 
it's sort of like these uh, restaurant shows like uh, Bar Rescue with Jake Taffer. I don't know if you saw that at all before you you left, but uh, you know, there's a bar, it's going under business, they bring in a bunch of people and the as customers it gets overwhelmed and everything just crashes. Well, our medical system is under a stress test and it is starting to crash. We've seen stories of, of nurses now leaving their, their jobs, mm-hmm. of physicians, of you know, mental health issues coming up. So yeah, t- this is beyond me right now, but how can we reconceptualize how we look at COVID yeah. in terms of phases or life cycle or whatever you want to call it? It worked okay before, just okay. But it's certainly not working for this mess. I, I think it's such a valuable insight and contribution in it. And it's, it's not, this is not academic. I mean, it's, it may be discussed by academics, but I mean, the, the kinds of discussion you're, you're having right now, the kinds of issues you're raising, that boils down in the end to dollars spent on training in, in what areas equipment. I mean, think about that early phase of the pandemic in which we're talking in the United States very seriously about whether or not we can have, you know, respiratory equipment or can we even surge PPE? And that exposes the kinds of commitments that federal government and state level agencies have already made to which parts of a disaster they can cope with. And so this really, this matters in the, in the way that budgets get written and the way that trainings trainings work. And I, I guess I wonder, you know, follow-up question to you as a person who has done a lot of education with FEMA uh, as a teacher, what do you foresee now or in coming in the next couple of years? I mean, how will FEMA or state-level emergency management agencies, how will they learn from this disaster? We won't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in my view, we just see the same thing over and over again. You know, for example, look at Hurricane Ida. Have we really learned, and I'll, you know, I'll use a four-phase term, have we really learned about recovery when you look back at Katrina? No, that's true. I mean, people are tweaking, they're making improvements. The people that work for FEMA are doing their best, but the broader picture, um, and here's my sociology background, there's organizational inertia. Organizations just aren't going to change. And uh, again, I think uh, the whole issue of FEMA being under DHS has just exacerbated all of this. I mean, that's worth a two-hour discussion right there. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we know at one level, we know academically, we know professionally, bureaucracies don't work in time of crisis. Well, that's, that's settled. We, we know that. But yet, we continue to insist upon these rigid bureaucracies to manage these events. One of the things I will give hospitals a lot of credit for and I don't know if this is for every hospital, and this would probably be a topic I would be interested in trying to get some money for in research if I weren't retired, 
is the way hospitals adapted became very flexible to deal with the surge of COVID. I mean, it, it really fits the definition of emergent organization where they totally changed their structure. They totally changed their, their process of doing things and uh, set up something that would work because it's, it's not day-to-day -day business. And that's the whole issue. If you're in a new situation, your organization has to change or it's going to fail. Hospitals changed. They adapted the best they could with the resources they had. And uh, you know, theoretically, I find that interesting. And, you know, it goes right back to Russ and Henry's early work on emergence. It's still valid today. Um, same thing I learned with hospitals with convergence and people coming by, uh, you know, dropping off plastic bags since they didn't have PPEs or yeah. food or anything like that. You know, it goes right back to Fritz's work. And, and yeah, that's why you see some of the frustration of me on uh, Twitter at times is that, gosh, people don't panic when there's a disaster warning. Yeah, we've, we've known we that. Let's, yeah. Let's use that and move on to the, to the next steps. Mm -hmm. so, you know, so much of what happens in a disaster before, during, and afterwards. And notice I've been using before, during, and afterwards a lot rather than the different phases. Mm -hmm. It's predictable. I mean, to a certain degree, you can script out what's going to happen in these types of events. That's it's just the way it is. But in this case with COVID, um, and, and you made that clarification of sort of emergency, disaster, and catastrophe, yeah. um, and then you made it more complicated rather than less, which I appreciate in that different places around the world, or let's just talk about the United States, are experiencing one aspect of that or another at different times. Yeah. So I'm rolling down the street and I see emergency in my community, I look at the state level statistics and it's disaster. And then I turn on the news and I see nationally it's catastrophe and globally it's catastrophe. Um, but I still, I mean, the scale of this is really, uh, well, maybe it's, let me put it this way. Throughout my career, there's been this, this discussion or this sort of assumption, like the big one will come and that will change things. And September 11 wasn't it. Well, it was to a certain degree. I mean, the, the, you know, the federal government or changed a bit, I think, in ways that ultimately were not helpful to where we are today. That's my view. Katrina, okay, that's the big one and everybody was waiting. I don't see how you get any bigger than this. And so I hear your pessimism about learning from this and it's it's hard for me to cope with, frankly, as a person who's committed, yeah. you know, as you are to learning things from disasters. I just feel like we have to come up with new tools for that learning. And if that means getting people out there banging on doors or creating new educational forms or working in the communities, I don't know where to start with it, Dave. I guess that's my point. And I sense your futility and I feel it too, but I want to push back on it somehow. Well, I do think 
the degree programs have helped because you do have people in positions of leadership who know the science, they can predict what's going to happen, but you know their messages get watered down as you know, things go out or they try to work through their bureaucracy, just like you're still gonna have the sheriff, no matter what county you're in, wanting to call the National Guard to shoot them looters. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I used to say as a joke in class, I said, let the looters come because have you ever been to a disaster site? And then I show slides, what is there left to loot? And we know one of the larger problems in, dis, in many disasters is what do you do with the debris, debris management? Well, if you have the looters come in and loot the debris, you have your problem solved. Of course, that's all tongue in cheek, but it's just, yeah, yeah I'm, there's a certain degree of pessimism here, um, but we, um, I think this anti-science ideology we are experiencing right now is making it, it worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the, the ironies involved with that. Um, and then you know, going back to our textbook, I think that's one of the things we're promoting with the textbook is that it is science-based, evidence-based, and we are integrating ideas of uh, climate change, resiliency, although like many others, I think personally resiliency is a fad. Yeah. New, and you know, what, what is it? But yet it's, it's the word of the decade still. So as educators, it's important we educate the students as to what's going on right now, even though it will eventually disappear. So, yeah, we, we just have to keep on plugging away, and there's ebbs and flows of how important science is to all this. And uh, But the big picture is, in my view, a lot of this is just baked into the system. Hmm. And one issue I, I really haven't touched upon, but it plays such a large role, and it's probably the third theme, underlying theme in our textbook, is vulnerability vulnerability, social vulnerability. And that was, again, where you see the time factor comes in. Um, who moves more quickly through response and recovery? The wealthy. Uh, and, you know, the other groups associated with the wealth. Who moves through the slowest? Ethnic minorities, the poor, women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when someone says, well, when does the recovery period start? Or when does the when is the event over? Well, for whom? Right. We documented that recovery for Katrina took at least 10 years. And with so you know, so much is baked into the system. Um, you know, and we're gonna to continue to have um income and wealth differences. Mm. We're going to continue to have uh, sexism, racism, other isms in our system, both at the social, psychological, individual level, and at macro levels where it's built into the system, or for some people, they don't even recognize it. I don't know if this is the case now, but 
I remember one of Brenda's graduate students was, uh, was like 20, over 20 years ago now, was working on household recovery. And she was able to gain access to the data. I think I'm getting this right from the teleregistration center, although it was highly scrubbed, teleregistration center. Um, but basically, we found the FEMA system for housing was that if you owned a house, lots of resources available. Now, if you were a homeowner, it might not feel that way, but there was stuff there for you to get back into the home you owned and try to get back to normal life. If you were a renter, quite simply, you're screwed. The resources weren't there. So, you know, at that time, that was baked into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether something similar like that exists today, but I'd be willing to bet if you're a homeowner today, you can get through the system better than if you were a renter. So you know, I think vulnerability is something that's always lingering there. We have to consider it. It's baked into the system. And it also has that relationship with time. And right. it's just not going to happen as fast. I, I agree with you that vulner, to me, vulnerability is a term um, which also you can work with in terms of deep time and historical change over long stretches of time and help you understand structures like the healthcare system in the United States. Whereas resilience to, to me, I, I know why people jumped at resilience and I don't want to litigate resilience here, I think. Um, but it's resilience to me is allergic to time analysis. It, it's, it's very much, it, it's, it's very focused on the near past, the present and some sort of future and a set of conditions, and it puts so much pressure on the individual and doesn't look at structures as much as I would like it to. And that's my, that's my beef. But, um, but as, as you said, and I like the way you said this, I think as educators and as researchers, we got to use every tool. So maybe the resilience tool doesn't work for you right now, but that doesn't mean we have to go on a, on a uh, crusade, and I'm lecturing against myself here, on a crusade against resilience or a crusade against these other terms. Use what you can. But I, I like you, I think the vulnerability points to factors of time and to structure that ultimately are important. And I guess it also, what, what I hear you saying too, is that in the career of a disaster researcher, you kind of got to be in it for the long game. It's not going to be one disaster that's going to change the whole political economy, nor is it going to make or break your whole career. You got to be thinking over long stretches of time as a researcher. And that's important, I think, advice. You didn't, you're not preaching, but I'm gonna I'm gonna extract from what you said and, and think to younger researchers who are entering the field. I draw a lot of optimism from that point, Dave. Yeah, yeah. And I would hope that this these newer generations do take the time to dig back into the the classic works, because only then will some of the stuff, other stuff they're reading now, really make sense. Uh, and even you know, even if someone were to look at my work, there's a lot of either intentionally or unintentionally subtle stuff in there that even if it's not directly cited, you can see the influence of uh, Dines and Quarantelli or Drabeck 
or uh, Gilbert White for that for that fact. And mm. just it took. See, Gilbert wrote 1934 that humans create disasters, such as floods. Yeah, but it really wasn't until the 92 or 93 Mississippi River floods was that point really proven. Now there was evidence before, but gosh, that's a long time for a prediction to come true because Mother Nature moves at a different clock than we do. Just like pandemics, 100 years since our last pandemic. Well, I want to give a shout out to a lot of what we've just been discussing. You go into greater detail in in, several articles, but one particularly reconsidering the phases of disaster, which you published in the International Journal of Mass Emergencies and Disasters, came in 97. And uh, for a disaster research nerd like me, it took me back to the International Journal of mass emergencies and disasters database and all this is open source so you can everybody can go and read those and i get lost in there yeah. in a good way i mean it's like there's so much great work in there and then the disaster research center only a shout out to valerie marlowe and what she's doing at the disaster research center archive because they have a, a tremendous database where you can read working papers things that were published things that are unpublished and things that are in the works and um some of that is your work and the colleagues that you've that you pointed to we're I've been very greedy with your time. And in fact, I got so into the conversation, I didn't even remind people what we were doing here. So this is COVID Calls, and you're listening to my conversation with Dave Neal, disaster research and emergency management scholar. And this is the 350th episode of COVID Calls. And I can't think of a better way to have spent it than talking to you, Dave. I want to just give, I want to have one more question and then a chance for you to um, underline anything that you think we didn't touch on that you want to hit. But I do want to I'm cautious about this, but I want to talk about Trump. I guess more generally, I want to talk about authoritarianism, charismatic people, and conspiracy. And I think it's sort of all wrapped up in there when I think about Trump, because I've heard this a bit, and I wonder what you think. Yes, COVID was a was a unique challenge in a in a hundred ways, and it showed why you need to also leave space for improvisation and for people, charismatic people, to step up and and cut through what can be two slow processes. And I I'm temperamentally inclined towards that idea. And and yeah. then yet when I look at it and I see, okay, but in this case it was Donald Trump that was doing that. That he made this, his response is my pen, only I can solve this. I will create the vaccine program. I will tell you what the numbers mean. And so I think it showed to me, and this is, and I want to hear what you think about this. I could be off base, but he showed, yes, the need and the prospect for having an individual translate the complexity of a disaster to the public. But to my mind, he showed when there's no guardrails on that, what happens when an authoritarian does that? And it's bad. Yeah, I, in my view, the initial managing of COVID was was not good. And basically, and here I'm going to use the research to sort of back up what I say, is we know so much about, in my day it was called warning. Now it's called the risk communication, whatever. We know how to send out these messages. We know how to do it effectively. We know how to 
do it and make it work. And one of the things we also know is, for God's sake, don't send out mixed messages. And we were certainly at first getting mixed messages. And here I go into speculation, but uh, with Bannon, I don't know if he was in Trump's ear at this time, but Bannon's whole philosophy of just stirring things up, drawing from Lenin of all people, but stirring things up and the way that Trump liked to operate was to stir things up and then politicizing both mask wearing and the vaccination. And that's why we are where we are today. And, uh, you know, almost 700,000 people in a year and a half have lost their lives here in the United States because of those antics. And then to find people with uh, medical degrees who would go along with this nonsense. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to fight. It really is. I mean, it was hard enough to fight rumors and misinformation before the Internet, before Facebook and Twitter. And now it's even worse. I, I remember Bill Clinton and his political team when he was running for uh, election, they had an emergency response team where if something came up, boom, they could attack it right away. Well, that was 1992. I, I don't know if that approach would would work today. Um, yeah, the, the issue of, a, of an authoritarian personality in the United States has always worried me. I was concerned during Watergate. Those were tough times. But this, in politicizing the vaccine, and politicizing COVID, had just made it a lot worse. And, and I, interestingly, the, that 33%, they seem to forget that Trump got vaccinated. Everyone at Fox News has to be vaccinated. Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News, was one of the very first people, period, to get vaccinated. But they're using these. Well, Tucker Carlson, he's vaccinated. I mean, just, um, so, yeah, someone did a good job of just throwing a monkey wrench into the system. And, uh, you know, that'll be for future uh, social scientists sociologists, uh, psychologists, historians to try to figure out. But, you know, all those lessons are there. Mm -hmm. and, you know, people have already been drawing parallels between 1930 Germany and us right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's disconcerting. Well, we, we should get towards wrapping up. Um, sure. Anything left on the table that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? I know we couldn't. We could do another session and maybe we should, but... Um, I'd be glad to down the road, and hopefully we would be out of all, all of this by then. Um, for me, it's, it's, it's just been an interesting 40 years watching, I'll say, the fields develop, the disaster management and the emergency management of the profession and the research develop. We're moving forward. There's and a lot of mistakes made. Maybe that's part for another time where uh, the Academy and FEMA made, made some poor decisions on what we're doing. Sometimes they were trying to do the right thing. Other times, uh, I'll just say this, the degree programs are seen as a profit center rather than 
trying to push along uh, good. Um, I'm going to be sitting back watching. I, I might have one or two things. I've got some papers to finish up, but maybe one or two new things before I eventually hang up my computer. I guess that's metaphor instead of cleats or whatever. Um, but we're in tough times right now. We, we really are. And I keep on trying to draw parallels between this and if we were in uh, England during World War II being uh, bombed by both bombers and then the B-1 and B-2 rockets, just this constant parade of crises. How long can we hang in there to do this and maintain our somewhat normal lives? And, and with that, any uh, researchers out there, think about time and disaster. A lot of things are wrapped up in it. Um, I also have a publication from an International Journal of Mass Emergencies and Disaster simply called Social Time and Disaster, mm -hmm. published 2013, I think. And it goes into a lot more, it's like the continuation piece of the four phases, you know, if you really want to get your hands dirty. And I think at least implicitly see some of the issues between time and vulnerability. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a good one to read. So uh, with that, I'm, we'll call it a night. I'm really, uh, yeah. thank you, Scott, for the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Maybe number 700. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I... Yeah, I said I would stop at 100, and that was a while ago, and here we go. But, um, you know, I really, it would be, thank you for mentioning that 2013 piece, Dave, and um, I'd love to see you put all those essays together into a short book. I think I would be, well, that's a conversation for another day, but it's, and I agree with you, that sort of thinking about time and disaster is really crucial. Just want to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID Calls, episode 350, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live, 6 p.m. Eastern Time weekdays. Today was a special one at 7.30 p.m. And special thanks to my guest, the great Dave Neal. Um, always learn a lot from your work and, and have enjoyed this opportunity and hope to get to see you in person sometime. Uh, stay healthy, Dave, and everybody else stay healthy. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thanks. <laughs>